right, well, go ahead and open your Bible to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to see just a piece of this story from Exodus 13. We're going to be primarily in Exodus 14 today. And then hopefully, uh, if I can move through this quickly enough, we're going to get to see just a piece of Exodus 15. As well, if you're new with us today, we are in part two of a series we're calling Infinite Eight of the Greatest Stories Forever Told. And so last week we started uh, at a great place to start. We started in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Uh, if you weren't here for it, uh, I think it was a, a fantastic message from God, very encouraging and very inspiring. I really encourage you go to citychurchob.com, check out the podcast uh, or to iTunes, look for City Church, download that and check it out from last week. Uh, but this week. We're talking about Moses. <coughs> As we get ready to dive in, I want to preface with this. That there's a, a danger uh, that, that we can go to, too far to one ditch or too far uh, to the other when it comes to applying the context of Scripture to our lives. In other words, we can over-apply the Bible to our lives uh, and, and read ourselves into it, make ourselves the hero of the story, and we're not. Um, or we can underapply scripture to our lives. If we just read the Bible as some historical biography, if we just read it as some document of events, the things that happened in the past, uh, then we can kind of divorce ourselves from what's going on and we can kind of just observe. But I don't believe that's what the Bible is. See, the Bible says that the word of God is living and active. It's an eternal document. And as such, I believe that we can actually find ourselves in this story, I believe that, that it applies to us, uh, even though these are things that happened thousands of years ago, that we can see ourselves in the story. So I'm going to help you today to find yourself in the story of Moses leading the Israelites across the Red Sea. But, but there is a ditch that we could go too far. In other words, uh, you wake up with a headache tomorrow and you're like, oh, this is the Red Sea that I have to cross. That, that's over-applying the, the, the scripture to ourselves. Uh, you're like, uh, God, my boss is Pharaoh. Destroy him. Uh, that, that's an over-application. Or, or maybe, you know, you're like, the, the person I came to church with is Pharaoh. Or maybe you found that person somewhere else in your life. That, that's, that's going too far that direction. But I think most of the time we go too far the other direction. Too, too often we just kind of distance ourselves from it. We try to read it as some thing that happens, some cute little story. In fact, this story especially, we love to make cute, right? Like, I don't know if you grew up in, in church, maybe in children's ministry, you remember the song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go, right? Somebody knows it. That's right. Okay, some of you remember it. So we, we make this story, this cute little children's story where, where Moses is asking Pharaoh to let his people go and he's walking like an Egyptian and he's thrusting his hips uh, and he's doing all these things. And it's like, this is a story of destruction. There were livestock, have plagues raining down on them, plagues raining down on people. There were children who died. This is a very serious, very heavy piece of scripture. Um, and yet I believe that you and I can find inspiration and encouragement in the midst of it uh, because the Bible is living and active. Uh, so we, we see the Bible is at its core the Bible is story. Uh, yes, the Bible has many different genres. It has poems, and it has genealogies, and it has lists of dietary laws, and all these things that you have to do if you have this skin disease or that skin disease, and it has all that stuff. But, but at its root, at the very center of it, the Bible is a story, and it's the story of God, the story of his love, the story of his redemption, the story of his people. It is the song that never ends, and it goes on and on and on 
my friend. And some of you just checked out of the whole message because you're going to be singing that song in your head for the rest of the message and probably the rest of the week. I'm sorry if I did that to you. Uh, this is Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 7. We're going to dive right in today. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. See, we see here that, that there was a, an easy way, it seems, for God's people to go from point A to point B, to go from Egypt where they were in slavery to the promised land where God was calling them, there was a shorter route. And yet God did not take them along the shorter route. One of the reasons why I'm so excited for us to, to be able to, to read through eight of the greatest stories forever told is I think we can see these common threads that run through scripture. And I think we have the opportunity to, to confront the, these Christian cliches that we have and actually see, do these actually flesh out in the way that God relates to his people? So for instance, here's a Christian cliche. God's way is the best way. You ever said that? You ever heard somebody say that? Well, of course, I'm not arguing that God's way is the best way. But if you're the, the Israelites right now and you said God's way is the best way and yet the promised land is right here, but God doesn't want to take you from here to here. God wants to take you all the way over here and then loop back around over here, and you've got to go through all this stuff, and now you've got to cross the Red Sea. You may not have known that. They didn't actually have to cross the Red Sea. There was a direct route with land where they could have gone from Egypt to Israel. It's not there anymore. They built a canal. The Suez Canal is there now. But thousands of years ago, 3,000 years ago when this happened, the Israelites could have walked on dry land from Egypt to the promised land. Why in the world would God take his people to the middle of a sea when he could have them walk across on land? You see, a lot of times we, we have this mistake of thinking that, that God's way is the easy way, and yet when God takes us in a way that's not easy, all of a sudden we think, well, it can't be God's way. Can you imagine what the Israelites were thinking? Moses has lost his mind. Moses has lived in the desert for too long. Moses doesn't know what he's doing. He's 80 years old. He's kind of getting up there. Like, I know that he got us out of Egypt, but somebody else is going to have to get us to Israel. Can you imagine what they were thinking as they come up to this big, giant body of water when they knew there was land between Egypt and Israel? So a lot of times, God doesn't take us the easy way. God's way is always the best way, but it's not always what feels the best to us. And the one way I can illustrate this, I think we got a picture. If you'll go ahead and put this up for us. Uh, this is from a family vacation uh, that we took in uh, when I was like in my late teens. We drove through Colorado. We were driving from North Carolina to Seattle, to our, our hometown. Uh, and this is in southeast Colorado in a place called Canyon City. And this main road that you see right in front of you is called Skyline Drive. Now, Skyline Drive is basically a ridge. And if I remember right, it's, it's a couple miles long. Um, that extends. There's the main road down here. You can see the main road off to the side. Uh, on the right-hand right side of the picture. So there's the main road, the normal road, the, the through traffic, two lanes that everybody takes. But then there's this one-lane gravel road, most of it's gravel, called Skyline Drive. And so, of course, when we found out that there was this one-lane road that goes up, and it gives you the best views, and it gives you the access to all of the beauty of Colorado, my dad and I are like, we got to do Skyline Drive. And my mom is like, I rebuke you, Satan. Uh, <laughs> Because my mom likes to be safe. Safety is her priority on a vacation or really in any other situation. Adventure was our priority. So we're thinking there's this road where we can get these views, and there's cliffs on both sides, and it's only one lane. Awesome. 
and mom's praying in the spirit the whole time. Uh, and, and so we decide to take this road, and we go up on this ridge, and of course the, 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 the views are incredible. God's creation is amazing. If you don't ever get out into nature, I mean, I, you're missing out. You meet Jesus out in nature sometimes in a way that you can't meet him in a building. You just do. Uh, and, and so we got up there, and we got to see these views and take it all in and, and take the road. And, of course, Dad, like, edges over closer to the edge to mess with Mom's head. And, you know, he's having some fun with her. Uh, but, but we had this adventure. And you know what? That one-laid road, it was slower. It was scarier. It was much lonelier. There was a lot less people, a lot less cars on that road. And yet that was, in my opinion, the far better route. And I think a lot of times that's what God does. Like we can see the main traffic goes this way. The majority of the world goes that way. And that way seems safe. That way seems easy. That way seems well paved. That way has guardrails. And yet God wants to lead us over here. And it's like, God, what are you doing? God, I thought your way was the best way. See, in the middle of the story sometimes, God's way doesn't feel the best way. In fact, a lot of times God's way feels completely the opposite. A lot of times God's way is going to feel the least comfortable. A lot of times God's way is going to feel the most intimidating. A lot of times God's way is going to feel the most lonely. And yet many times that's exactly the center of what God has for us. And so yes, God's way is always the best way. But don't misinterpret and think that means that God's way is the convenient way or the comfortable way or the easy way. Because for the Israelites, it absolutely was not. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. So the Israelites thought they were ready for battle. They thought they were armed. They thought it's time for us. And yet God said it's not time for you to fight. Because if they went the short way, why didn't they go the short way? They didn't go the short way because there were Philistines the short way. And the Philistines were big. They were bad. They were tough. God says, I'm going to help you take the Philistines down in a few hundred years. But right now, you've been slaves for 450 years. You're not ready to go to battle with the Philistines. You might be dressed for battle. You might think you're ready for this, but you're not ready for this. You know, sometimes we think we're ready for things, and God says, no, you're not. Sometimes we think we're ready for a relationship, and God says, nope. Do you trust him? Will you listen to him? Sometimes God thinks we're ready to take a big financial step, and God keeps putting the brakes on it. We're like, God, how come I can't get the loan? God, how come I can't get the situation to open up? How come I can't get that approval? And you think that God is against you, but really God's protecting you because he knows you're not ready for that thing yet. doesn't mean you're not going to be ready. doesn't mean you're never going to face it. doesn't mean God's not going to be for you when you get to that point. They absolutely took the Philistines down later on, but they weren't ready now. So God had to take them. A different way. Aren't you glad that God leads us the best way for us, even when it doesn't seem the best way in our eyes? Moving on to next chapter, Exodus 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea. It says, Turn back. That can't be right. We're moving forward. Why would we go back? Why would we move backwards? He says, they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Key verse right here. What's God going to do in the middle of any story? 
God's goal is always to gain glory for himself. That sounds selfish. That sounds arrogant. Why would God want glory for himself? Because God knows that he's the answer. Best way I've ever heard this illustrated, if you're out on a boat and somebody gets thrown overboard and that person needs a lifeboat or needs a life preserver and you throw them the life preserver but they can't see it, if you yell to them to look towards you so they can find the life preserver, that's not arrogant. That's not selfish. That's heroic. That's generous. What you're doing, you're helping them find their rescue. God brings glory to himself. Why? Because when he brings glory to himself, people look to him, and that's the only place they can find rescue. So God is always bringing glory to himself. That's always the greatest goal that God has in any situation. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't want your good. God's always working for our good, but he's also working for his glory. And so in this story, the two come together. In fact, the two always come together. God's glory always brings us to the place of our good. And yet, in the moment, the Israelites are probably doubting what God is up to. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Pharaoh just lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million free laborers. Started to have some second thoughts. They had built the greatest empire on earth at this point in time on the backs of these 2 million Israelites. They had built some of the greatest architectural achievements in the history of man on the backs of these Israelites. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh forgets the ten plagues. All of a sudden, he forgets all the stuff that had come against him because he resisted God's people going. And he says, we need to go get them. What have we done? So Pharaoh changes his mind. In fact, Pharaoh changed his mind a bunch in this story. Uh, and the great thing is that even when people change their mind about what they want for you, God's mind is set about what he wants for you. God knows the plans he has for you. And even if somebody else changes their mind, even if somebody else's decision seems to bring opposition against you, seems to bring destruction towards you, God's mind has already been made up. His desires for you have already been declared. Verse 5, Pharaoh says, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Verse 6, so he had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. What were the Israelites doing when they left Egypt? They were marching out boldly. They were pumped. They were courageous. God had shown up. God had struck down the enemy. God had finally come to rescue his people. The Israelites felt good. They had their swagger on. And then things start to change. Watch what happens in just two verses. From verse 8, they're marching out boldly. Verse 9 says, The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hatharoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. Now guess what happened to the Israelites? They were terrified. And they cried out to the Lord. Verse 8, we got it going on. Verse 10, they're scared to death. So quickly, things change from the moment of celebration and boldness over what God has done to instantly almost forgetting who he was and what he had done in their lives. And it's so easy for us to look down on the Israelites, but I think we do the same thing so often in our lives. Verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt, the same people who were crying out to God 
to get out of Egypt are now crying out, take us back. All of a sudden, they want the thing that they hated so much. There can come a time in the process of God leading you out of your rebellion, leading you out of your sin, leading you out of your slavery. And in the midst of that process, where God's purpose begins to take place in your life, and you look up, and something that you thought you had defeated is coming at you stronger than it ever did before. And in that moment, how do you respond? What's your reaction when you see that thing that you thought was part of your past, and all of a sudden it's bearing down on you with greater intensity than you've ever seen? we got to not look at the Israelites quite so judgmentally, because just let us know half an inch in Memphis, and we start questioning things. You know what, God? I'll check you out in a couple weeks. I'm going to stay here where it's safe. I'm going to load up on bread and milk, and I'm going to buy it all out. I don't know why we do that, but that's the thing. Everybody wants bread and milk when the storm comes because I don't know. Uh, But that's what they do. That's how we respond. We freak out over something so little. This wasn't a little bit of inclement weather that's going to inconvenience your plans. This wasn't a little bit of weather that's going to hold you back, make you an hour late to your situation. This was death that they were facing straight in the eye. And in the midst of facing death in the eye, yeah, they backslid a little bit. Yeah, they stepped back from their faith. Yeah, they stepped back from their calling. Yeah, they stepped back from who they knew they were, who they knew that God called them to be. But how often do we do that? How easy is it for us to take that step back in the middle of our circumstance? So we need to not judge the people who are scared and nervous and timid. Don't judge the people who are crying out to God in confusion. Because human nature is such that many times it's actually easier for us to live in slavery because it's predictable and understandable than it is for us to walk in freedom that is so unpredictable. Somebody's got an addiction, but they don't want to tell anybody about it. They know that telling somebody about it is what's going to bring them the opportunity to get freedom. They know that talking about it is going to get help, and help is how they're going to get free. But it's unpredictable. What will people think of me? How will it affect my relationships? How will it affect my job? What's going to happen to me? And the unpredictability of freedom ends up being more terrifying than the predictability of bondage. So the Israelites said, why would you take us out of Egypt? We had food there. Was the food great? Probably not. I don't know what the slaves ate, but I'm guessing it wasn't the greatest things that Egypt had to offer. But it was predictable. They knew what was going to happen. They knew what was going to come their way each day. And now as they're beginning to walk in freedom, it's unpredictable. Now things are coming at them that they didn't expect. And they're beginning to miss the consistency and the predictability of bondage. we got to get to a place where we desire freedom. No matter what unpredictability it may bring. No matter what questions it may arise in our hearts where we're willing to pursue the best that God has for us, even if it means We have to lose out on some predictability and some consistency. Now, here's where heaven's perspective is so much different than the perspective of the Israelites. Remember when God had said to Moses that none of these other two million Israelites had the advantage of hearing. He said, Moses, I brought the Egyptians out here to deal with them. I brought the Israelites out here to bring me glory, to prove a point to them. I didn't bring all these Israelites out here to kill them. I didn't bring all these Israelites out here for them to die. The Israelites didn't hear that. Moses heard it. But the other two million didn't have that benefit. So when you don't know that, you're terrified in the midst of the story. Here's what I want to encourage you to do as you read the Bible. 
read it in such a way as you don't know the end of the story. Not ultimately at the end. Obviously, when you end a chapter, you can go back to remembering how it finishes and remember what Jesus has done and all that. But in the midst of the story, to, to understand what's really going on with the people, step back from it. We've probably all heard this story a, a million times. Hollywood's done multiple blockbusters about the Exodus. Uh, and the, the Red Sea scene is always the climactic scene, whether it's Charlton Heston or Christian Bale or the Prince of Egypt. Man, the, 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 we've seen this picture so many times that it's so easy for us to say, stupid Israelites. God's going to open the Red Sea and he's going to kill the Egyptians and everything is going to be But in the midst of the moment, if you're in the middle of the story, you don't know that. And as you go through the opposition in your life, as God brings you on the trail to deliverance from the sin and the slavery and the shame of your past, there's going to be some moments in the middle of the story where you don't know how it ends. There's going to be some moments in the middle of the story where you're beginning to say, God, why'd you bring me out here? It was so much easier back there. It was so much more comfortable back there. What are you doing? And it's in those moments where we've got to remember that there is an end to the story coming and that God is the God of victory, that God is the God of deliverance, that God is the God who's going to bring us out. Amen. Amen. So read the Bible like you don't know the end of the story. It becomes a lot more exciting. It becomes a lot more interesting. As you begin to put yourself in that situation, you begin to relate to it. You begin to see what's going on. The Israelites didn't know how it was going to end. We have so much more knowledge than they did, not just about their story, about our story. The Israelites didn't know about the resurrection. They might have heard some glimpses of a prophecy that may one day come, but they didn't know how it was going to work. We've got the stories. We've got the eyewitness accounts of the greatest moment in history, which FYI, we end the series with the greatest story forever told, and it's the story of the resurrection on Easter Sunday, and it's going to be amazing, and you better be here and bring everybody you know. It's going to be great. We've got that story. We know that Jesus conquered sin. We know that he conquered death. We know that the grave couldn't hold him down. And yet in the midst of our struggle, sometimes we forget the power of our God. And we think that somehow God has forgotten us or abandoned us in the middle of the desert. Don't make that mistake. I'm pumped up to preach about Moses. I'm pumped up about this message. You know, uh, I've never preached Moses in the Red Sea. In in the history of my preaching, which is like, I don't know, 10 years roughly, that I've been preaching in in different situations and scenarios, I've never had the chance to preach this message. So I'm pumped up about it. Next week, I get to preach about Jonah and the whale. Uh, and I've never done, I've, I've referenced it. I did like a half message about Jonah and the whale one time, but I've never done that completely in a full message either. So I'm pumped up for that as well. This series is going to be a lot of fun, but I'm not just pumped up because of stories I've never gotten to preach. It's because there's so much life in these stories and so much application to where you and I are at. So back to our story, chapter 14, verse 12, Moses, they say, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. If you follow Jesus long enough, there will probably be a point in time where you think, man, it would be just easier if I didn't follow you at all. There's going to be a point in time where you think, man, I would be so much better off if I never became a Christian. And you can look at me real holy if you want to. I want to talk to the real people in the room. Uh, Man, there's, there's a lot of times where you come to that point and you say, you know what, this other person at work, who doesn't love God, doesn't serve God, doesn't honor God, doesn't obey God, they got promoted. 
And they use all these underhanded practices. And they cheat the system. And they lie and they deceive. And they're blessed. And I'm still in the same position. And you look at that and you say, God, I'd be better off if I cheated the system. Maybe I'd be better off if I used some, some underhanded practices. Maybe I'd be better off if I didn't waste my time going to church every Sunday morning. Anybody ever thought like that? Am I the only one? Single ladies in the house. All the single ladies, where you at? A lot of times, godly people, they come to that situation and they begin to think, you know what? I ain't finding no man in the church. I ain't finding no Christian godly man. I bet if I was at the club, I'd have a man. I bet if I was at the bar, I'd have a man. You begin to look, you begin to yourself you're like i've been believing god for a relationship for so long and my best friend she doesn't serve god she's been sleeping with her boyfriend for three years and she's got everything she wants you begin to say maybe if i didn't follow god maybe if i didn't listen to your laws maybe if i didn't obey your rules you ever thought that you ever questioned that because a lot of us are going to come to a point like that at some point in time. If you've not gotten to that point already, just be warned, it may come. Where the circumstances and the situation that you're in doesn't add up to the promises that you thought God had made for you. And when you get to that point, remember this. You are not at the end of the story. Remember you're just in the middle. Remember that even when it's dark and even when it's cold and even when it's lonely and even when God seems nowhere around, he has not forgotten you. He hasn't. Amen. Praise God. See, they're fussing at Moses, but they're really questioning God. That's really the root of what's going on. It's they're questioning God. Why would you take us out of the comfort, which it wasn't comfortable, out of the, the safety, which it wasn't safe, out of the, the blessings, which it wasn't blessed, they begin to look fondly back at their life before deliverance. You ever done that? You ever looked fondly back at your life of sin? And back when you were there, you, were, you, were, you felt dirty. You felt unfulfilled. You felt so empty. You felt like, man, there's, there's just nothing going on. And yet, as the years go by, we begin to, 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 to look at it through these rose-tinted glasses. And we begin to think that, oh, man, man that, that fornication was great. That, that time, man, those, that partying days, those were awesome. Those were the good old days. Don't glorify your life of slavery. Don't try to make it out to be something that it wasn't. You were miserable. It might have felt good for a moment here and there, but overall, you were miserable. You hated it, and God brought you out of that. And so they begin to paint this picture of Egypt that is completely contrary to reality to tell themselves that things were better back where they were. Verse 13, this next part, you've probably heard this before. Even if you're not a Christian, you're probably familiar with these next couple of verses. These are legendary. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Now, you know Moses is saying, God, you better back me up on this. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. That's a bold statement. And he is hoping and hoping and praying that God comes through. Now, when he says this, you understand the Egyptians are coming with swords and spears, with the highest technology of the day, the greatest weapons. You know what Moses has? A stick. Right? Moses says the Egyptians who are coming at you with the greatest technology of the day, with the greatest weapons of mass destruction, you're never going to see them again. They're going to be destroyed. And he's standing there with a stick. That's the faith. 
That's a man who trusted God. It's awesome. It's beautiful. And verse 14, this is the one. This is on weight rooms around the country. This is on walls, on plaques. This is that statement that every, every person who's ever done a, a chap, been a chaplain for a sports team or for the military, as a group goes off to conquest, as a group goes out to conflict, they give them this verse. It's great. It's encouraging. It's awesome. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Somebody got that tattooed on their arm somewhere, I guarantee you. Standing on that, believing on that, it's great. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Isn't that encouraging? Problem is, it's actually wrong. I never saw this before in this story. I've seen, heard this verse so many times and heard it preached so many different ways. And this is why it's so, we got to be so careful not to lift a verse out of context. We can't just read a verse and say, you know what, I like what that verse says, I like what that guy said right there, and I'm believing it, and I'm going to claim that for my life. We've got to see what actually happens in the story. How does God respond to this statement? And we get God's response real quick, the very next verse, verse 15. Moses says, the Lord will fight for you, you ain't got to do nothing. All you got to do is be still. In verse 15, God responds, the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Why are you looking at me? In the midst of it, this is crazy to me. I never this in the story. I always thought he makes this promise and then God shows up and the Red Sea crashes on the Egyptians and they celebrate. Boom. That's not how it goes down. He says the Lord will fight for you. All you got to do is be still. And God says, what? I didn't say that. Why are you looking at me? Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites. And he completely contradicts Moses in the very next statement. Moses says, all you got to do is be still. God says, nope. Move. Tell the Israelites to move on. Yes, God was going to destroy their enemies, but if they stood right there where they were at, if they stood still, they were going to be crushed. They had to move. And we've got to put action behind our faith. We can't just stand and wait for God to do something and believe God's going to show up. God shows up when we're moving. God is always behind people, and God will do what only he can do. But God will not do what you can do. If the Israelites just stood there and waited for a sure death, I think they're probably going to experience sure death. Because God says, get your butt in gear and move. Do something. And so I don't think that necessarily Moses was wrong in his statement. I just think it was maybe incomplete. Uh, I believe that internally they needed to have peace. They needed to be still. They needed to know that everything was going to be okay. But externally, they had to move. They had to surge. They had to get across that sea as God opened it. They had to do something. And so I believe internally, sometimes it's going to look different than external. And I think a lot of times we get this backwards. I think a lot of times we try to do the things that only God can do, and we don't do the things that he's commanded for us to do. God's given us authority. You know that, believers? That God's given you authority to triumph over serpents and snakes and scorpions? Do you know that God's giving you authority over the enemy? you know that God's giving you authority over demons that attack you, that, that persecute you, that tempt you, that come against your family? Do you know that God's giving you that authority? And so when God's given it to us, and then we get attacked, and we turn to God, and we're like, God, why don't you do something? He says, I already did. Move. Take the authority that I've given you. So many times we're crying out, God, my kids are far from you. God, I just want my kids to serve you. And God's saying, I gave you my word to speak over them. 
start to speak it over them. And as you start to speak my word over them, as you start to claim those promises, they're going to turn into the person that I designed them to be. So many times we say, God, do something about my marriage. My wife doesn't love me anymore. And God's saying, take that woman to a restaurant. Put a shirt on with some buttons. I mean, you know, do something. Move. And we're expecting God to do a miracle. And God's saying, get your butt in gear and do something. By the way, I titled this message, Keep Calm and Move On. I think that's what God's telling the Israelites. Yes, I think Moses was right. You just need to be still here. But they couldn't be still here. They had to move. And so we got to put some action behind our faith. Maybe the best way we can illustrate this very quickly is when you first started to drive, whoever taught you how to drive hopefully taught you this, that, that if you didn't drive a stick, let's say you're driving an automatic, that when you drive, you're only supposed to use one foot on the pedals, right? You got one foot. Now, that seems completely contrary because God gave me two feet. The natural thing to do would be one foot for the brake and one foot for the gas, right? You ever driven, you ever rode with, rode with somebody who drives with both feet? What happens when you drive with both feet? A point comes, and usually very quickly, where you push both of them at the same time. And it's, and you're all over the place, and you're jerked, and it's like whiplash. You don't do that. Young people, drive with one foot. Take that. Apply it to your life. You'll be blessed. Uh, and yet, I think that's kind of the picture of what God is telling us here in this story. That at some point in time, you're going to press the brake and press the gas at the same time. Where internally, you press the brake and rest in God's peace and his provision and his protection and his supernatural. But also, externally, you're pressing the gas and you're doing something. And I don't know if that makes sense, but I believe that's really the best picture of what God has the Israelites walking in right now. Verse 15, the story reaches its climax. Don't you love the Bible? Isn't this an awesome story? This is great. The Bible's so much cooler than you think it is. Read it. I'm telling you. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Verse 16, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea. On dry ground. You got to read the Bible like you don't know the ending. Because Moses didn't. Moses didn't know how this was going to end. And can't you just imagine? He says, raise your staff. And here's an army bearing down on him. And Moses is like, really, you want me to hold up this stick? Thanks, God. That's what you have me do. He says, raise your staff and hold out your hand over the sea and watch me display my power. Watch me bring glory to myself. Verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. <clears throat> and I will gain, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm going to make it through this. My voice is going to hold up in Jesus' name. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horse, horsemen. Glory means weight, W-I-G-H-T. God says, I'm going to gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. But if God's glory is weight, you know the greatest way that God can gain glory by increasing pressure. And sometimes in the middle of the story, the pressure has to increase so that the glory can increase. And as the pressure increases on the Israelites, as the, they wait till the last minute to open up the sea and to cross it, God's glory gets greater. Now, if the Egyptians were still back in the capital and God opened the Red Sea and the Israelites walked across the Red Sea and then God closed the Red Sea and then the Egyptians showed up and the Red Sea was closed and they went back to Egypt, does God get half the glory out of this story? No. 
The Israelites are still safe. The Israelites still survive. The end result is still the same, but God's glory is denied. And so God allows the pressure to turn up for a moment in the Israelites' life because he knows that as the pressure increases, his glory will increase. And when you're in the midst of that pressure and that opposition next time, remember that God's glory is going to increase in your situation. Stay faithful. Believe him. Trust him. Now the story gets beautiful. Because now Moses no longer has to rely on this overall sense of, I'm going to make it through. But now God begins to speak plainly. Now he gives specific directions. Verse 16 again. <clears throat> Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 18. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Verse 19, then the angel of God who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. It's a bizarre turn of events in verse 19. Everything's making sense. The angel of God's in front of them. He's been leading them through a pillar of fire at night, through a pillar of cloud by day. He's been in front of them. And right at the moment when they need God's direction the most, right at the moment when they need to see exactly where to go, all of a sudden God departs. And he loops around behind them. And God says to you and to me today that even in the moments where his visibility has decreased, don't you dare make the mistake of believing that his capability has decreased or that his availability has decreased. Just, just because they all of a sudden could not see God anymore, all of a sudden they couldn't see his presence, didn't mean that God was not for them, didn't mean that God was not with them. In fact, it meant exactly the opposite. Why did God go behind them? Because he had their back. So what did God do? He went behind them so that when the Egyptians showed up, because the Egyptians weren't going to get to them before they got across the Red Sea. This is the part that we don't see a lot in this story. If God doesn't go behind them to slow down the Egyptian army, they never make it across. But God's presence goes behind them to slow down Egypt. And we're going to see it in the story right here. Verse 19, then the angel of God who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Verse 20, <clears throat> coming between the armies of Is Egypt and Israel, throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side so that neither went to the other all night long. Sometimes when it seems like God has disappeared in your situation, he hasn't disappeared at all. He's just got your back. He's working on something. He's defending you from something. He's protecting you from something. God's visibility will not always be there on this earth. We're not always going to be able to see him until we get to heaven. But his availability and his capability will always be present in your life. My presence will go before you. My presence will go behind you. I've given you my presence as a rear guard. He begins to say to them, he says, I'm leading you still, even though I'm behind you. So, about to wrap this up. Tell you what, we got a few more verses in this chapter, just because it's been a little longer today. Why don't we just stand up in honor of the, these final part of this story? But let's all just stand up. We're going to read this together. We're going to tie a bow on this message, understand what's really going on here, uh, and wrap this up. Verse 21, stay with me, stay focused. I know that it's easy to get distracted when we stand. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. 
The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right, a wall of water on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw them into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. I love this. The tables have turned. First of all, when, when you think that, hey, my, my opposition has things better, man, that they seem so much stronger than I do. They seem like they have so much greater opportunity than I do. They had the greatest chariots in all of Egypt. And what did God do fighting for them? The Israelites had no chariots. They had no horsemen. So what's God do? God shuts down their wheels. He begins to make the chariots fall apart. He's going to protect you. It doesn't matter if it seems like somebody else has got better, better predictability. They've got better odds. They've got greater capability. They've got more talent. They've got more money. They've got more looks. doesn't matter. God's going to be there for you. He's going to protect you just like he did here. But not only that, before this, the Israelites are running away from the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are pursuing them. They're coming after them. And now the tables turn, and all of a sudden, God's enemies, the enemies of God's people who were trying to tear them down, now they want to get away from God's people because God has showed up. All of a sudden, the Egyptians say, put the brakes on. Let's go back the way we can. We need to get away from them because God has shown up against me. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not, <clears throat> not one of them survived. This is a story about God's glory. We've talked about how we're in the story, and I believe we totally are. But the story is about God's glory. He's the one who's glorified in it. He's the one who gains the glory. I told you at the beginning of this series that, that each week we're going to show you how it's really the story of Jesus. How every story, that all of scripture is ultimately pointing to the Redeemer who's going to come. In this story, <laughs> Jesus, the hero, is represented by Moses. Moses is what we call a type or a shadow of Jesus. He's a foreshadow. And just as Moses was the deliverer who went into Egypt to bring God's people out of slavery and out of shame and out of sin into the promised land, Jesus is the deliverer who comes to us. And he meets us in Egypt. He meets us in our sin. He meets us in death. He meets us in our shame. He says, I got a better place for you. And I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to take you to that place. And the great thing is that Jesus is the better Moses. See, Moses had some junk. The reason why Moses didn't do this until he was 80 years old, he was a murderer. <clears throat> the reason why Moses didn't actually get to complete the story and go into the promised land with God's people is he sinned in another way. Towards the end, Moses didn't have it all together, but Jesus won't let you down. Jesus is the Redeemer who will rescue you, who will spare you, who will take you to the place of the promise. What I want to do is I want to pray for you in just a second. If you're here today and you don't know that Redeemer, you haven't met that Savior, you're still in Egypt, you're still in sin, you're still in slavery, you're still in bondage, I want you to know that Jesus wants to bring you home, that he wants to take you to a better place. And it's going to be an adventure. It's not always going to be better in the moment. Sometimes it's going to be scary. Sometimes it's going to look weird. Sometimes you're not going to know how it ends. But I promise you, it's always going to be for your good. 
He's always going to be for you. So let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're far from God today. You say, I need the Redeemer. I need the one to take me out of sin. I need the one to take me out of shame. I want to know Jesus today. Would you slip up your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I simply want to pray for you right where you're at. Say, I need Jesus today. Praise God. Praise God. I see your hand. Who else would say, count me in on that prayer? I need Jesus. I need the Redeemer today. Praise God. Amen. I want to lead you in a prayer of repentance. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It's simply a chance for your your mouth to agree with what's going on in your heart. For you to declare that Jesus is Lord. If you would, just uh, if you're a Christian today, pray this prayer out loud with us as a show of support for those who raised their hands this morning. Say, Father God, I come before you today. A sinner. I know I haven't lived the way you want me to. And so today, I turn from my sin, and I turn to Jesus. Jesus, I ask you right now to come into my heart, come into my life, save me, forgive me, live in me, and live through me. I give you the throne of my heart. I want to live for you. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you pray that prayer today, the Bible says there's a party going on in heaven. There's a celebration with your name on it. Come on, let's celebrate with heaven right now. I know we had at least one. It's kind of dark. There might have been some other hands. We had at least one come home. Praise God for that. If you raise your hand today, we want to put a book in your hand at the end of service called Fresh Start. It's going to help you to know how to walk out the the decision that you just made. We also have Bibles down here for you. We'd love to give those to you. We'll have some prayer partners down front for you at the end of service. Um, Are you bringing me water? Give it up for Mercedes. Praise Jesus. Thank you. Wow. All right. That's the worst my my voice has ever gone out. That's like worse than Camp 662 voice. Um, All right. Here's what I want to do as we wrap up today, guys. I know we've seen a lot of scripture already, but I want to show you just a couple more verses because I want to go into chapter 15. Because chapter 15, we see the Israelites' response. We've seen the deliverance. We've seen what God's done. If you're a Christian here today, you've been delivered. You've brought out, been brought out of Egypt. You've been brought out of sin and out of shame. Here's how the Israelites respond when they got delivered. I want you to see it. Chapter 15, verse 1. Look up on the screens with me. Read along with me. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Everybody say, I will sing to the Lord. The horse and its rider have been hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. Everybody say, I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The enemy sent his best to come after you, but it wasn't good enough when God is on your side. Verse 5, the deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Here's what I want you to see what happened. They celebrated in a major way when they got delivered. But not just that. says God's right hand shattered the enemy. What happened? What did God tell Moses to do? He said, lift your hand 
over the sea. Lift your staff up. Moses raised his hands in obedience to God. And when Moses' hand went up, God's hand went out. And God shattered the enemy. Come on. Do you see that? Let's raise our hands to the God who's stretching his hand out to us. Let's worship him. We're going to sing about the Lord our God. Come on. Take us away. Where's the sea?